0: Hi everyone, I'm Heidi Rogers, and this is Tell the Others. I wanted to create a place for meaningful conversation, life lessons, and parenting hacks. Sometimes I chat to interesting people, sometimes I answer questions about parenting or life stuff, and sometimes I just rant. These episodes are filled with stories and insights that made me say, oh, I just have to tell the others. So let's dive in to hear what we can learn today. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning into another episode of Tell the Others. I am Heidi Rogers, and today I am joined with a fun old friend from high school, Joe Titus. And Joe and I went to high school together, and then we reconnected during the pandemic with a startup project that Joe has co-founded and that I am helping out with and working on with him. Joe, thanks for being here today.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: So, One of the things, I guess, why I wanted to have you on and to talk about is, I guess when, so after high school, like we were saying before we started recording, we didn't even know that we both were in San Diego at the same time going to college. What did you study in college? And then, because I know, you know, the trajectory of where you ended up and ending up in New York and Wall Street and all that, but Back us up to, to San Diego and what were you studying there at college? And then what made you, because, you know, moving from California to the East Coast is a big jump. Well, to me, at least, too, because of the weather it would kill me, the snow and stuff. But what, what, yeah, where did you start? What's, what's your family background? You know, what made you want to go into finance stuff? You know, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I can relate it to us growing up. So we grew up in this great town, great place to, to be raised. A little bit of a bubble, but I learned a ton just by the people I interacted with. I was a part of the public education system, just like you, and we got a great education. But I was able to get by in high school without really studying or learning how to study. So this is a true story. I got two A's, drama one honors, and drama two, and I got two C's biology, and I can't forget the, uh, maybe biology the second semester. So my grade point average was exactly a 3.0. And I I fell right in the middle of, you know, our high school. And so when I wanted to go to school, I looked at schools two hours north and two hours south of where we lived, because I loved Southern California. I didn't think I was ever going to leave. And when I got to San Diego, I ended up making great friends, having a great college experience, obviously learning a lot, but those first 2 years of school especially academically super hard, super challenging because yeah, in high school I could get a, get by, not really reading, not really like but just picking it enough in the classroom and being a, a part of a room to do well enough to get Bs on everything and not having to really apply myself. And in college it stopped working. And so Uh, partly because there's so many distractions, especially that first year, right? There's alcohol, there's girls, there's friends, there's video games, there's whatever it was, right? And so I ended up um, having semesters where I didn't do that well. First semester of college, I only took three classes. I was a part-time student, had a lot of fun, got a 3.0, so my parents were okay. (laughs) And then uh, I didn't do well the second semester, freshman year. Sophomore year, I fell in love with my college sweetheart. We were on and off dating freshman year. And then sophomore year, she went away, went abroad and she found an older boyfriend. And my grades went down and I partied a lot. And so she came back from France. We got back to, together and we studied and we dated for the rest of college. And what, what ended up happening was she really taught me how to study and you know, to apply myself. She she was a valedictorian in high school and super smart and super educated, came to Wall Street as well. And, and so I ended up taking finance courses and really seemed like, wow, I'm really good at this. I like math. I always like math. I always like numbers. I kind of had this affinity to trying to make as much money as fast as I could. Right. And so there was this, when I got into finance courses, I was like, wow, I'm good at this. And I wanted to apply myself. And that was the difference. And I always wanted to apply myself to math, but I think I really, when I got into my core subjects of my major, which was business administration with an emphasis on finance, I just really loved it. And so I then started taking internships in our hometown, right? Because I thought I was going to work there, Mm -hmm. you know, three miles from where I grew up with a small broker dealer. And it was my third internship there. It was a semester before I was graduating. And the trader on the desk basically said, it was 5.30 in the morning, 6 in the morning, LA time. And he was like, why don't you move to New York? And I said, okay, I'll do it. And that's kind of how I ended up getting to New York.
0: Wow. And then when you got to New York, cause I've only like, I've never lived. There. I've only gone to New York just to visit and for trips and stuff like that. But I have this, you know, like you see in the movies of like the sort of wide eyed kind of green kid going, you know, to the big gold city of New York. And did you get there and sort of feel overwhelmed and like, whoa, I'm really far from home. Or were you, I guess you have that a bit of the ignorance and the naivete of a 20 something to be like, woo, New York. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And and I would say I probably had a little bit of arrogance as well, which is, you know, we went to a really big high school. Mm. And so when I went from the transition from a really big high school, 3000 kids to a college of 5,000 kids, like I was like, wow, like I can manage this. Right. I probably needed a much bigger school. And so when I came to New York, I think, there was just confidence that you go to high school. I have confidence. You go to college. You have confidence. And nobody wants to talk about the things that's like behind the covers, right? All the things that I'm not confident about. So when I got to New York, it really is a city that can make or break people. And it was really, really hard in the beginning. I, I was lucky. I had an amazing support system. My my sister ended up. Uh, I was. She was one of my roommates. And then my girlfriend from college, she moved out with me and we, it was 2002.com burst, uh, the bubble had burst. And so Wall Street wasn't hiring the same way. The big banks, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, they have a process of hiring analysts through a program. I didn't have any idea. My school didn't recruit from there. So like I was really wet behind the ears, as they say. I I didn't mm -hmm. know what was going on. And so I got to New York and I just could not find a job. It took nine months. And so I had to improvise, right? And I had to use a very small network because I didn't know people. And I just had to try and make something happen. And so the two things that I think I'm most proud of is eBay had become a thing. This is 2002. And before I moved to New York, I went through all my baseball cards and all my basketball cards. I was like, oh, I'm going to sell them. I need some money when I get to New York. I won't have a job. And I ended up buying a box of cards. And, and I pulled a Kobe Bryant in this, this box of cards. And I was so thrilled. It was worth like a few hundred dollars. I was like, oh, man, now I have to sell it. So I taught myself how to buy and sell products on eBay, And so this was 2002, got myself a scanner and all this stuff was very, very new. And it was the eBay marketplace is very similar to a stock exchange. And so I got to learn how to buy and sell things and make money and profit from other people's mistakes. And so it was really, it was interesting. And I ended up spending a lot of time with it. I think that's why my college girlfriend broke up with me because i was playing with baseball cards all day. And I I sort of gave that up when I got my first real job.
0: Wow. And what was your first real job? What were you doing?
1: So the first job I got in New York that was paying me was I worked at a law firm and I hated it. But I was like, maybe I'll be a lawyer. And so I worked there for four months and I met someone who went to Georgetown and his friend from Georgetown worked at a company in finance. And he's like, and they knew I wanted to not be at a law firm and work in finance. So he made an introduction and that's how I got my job. So it took me about 11 months to get my first real job on Wall Street.
0: Wow. I love that you were hustling, dude, selling stuff on eBay, and just trying to like feed yourself. That's yeah. pretty creative and having to figure out a way. God, that must feel like a million years ago to where you are yeah, now.
1: No. Yeah, yeah, of course. but. You learn little things that you you take and you iterate and you you got to fail a lot before you can succeed. And so I think that, one, that probably wherever you are in the world, that matters, right? Being able to, to fail, succeed, iterate, and, and improve your process. And I think New York, if you can do that in New York, that's what makes the city special, right? That there's this ability of a lot of people who may come in with some arrogance and it, it really, it makes you look, look at yourself differently and it's hard, right? And it is not for everybody, but if you can figure out certain things, it becomes really special later in life. But
0: so do you think it's sort of like in high school and then at college, you were a big fish in a little pond sort of thing. And then when you got to New York, you realized, Oh, wow, I'm actually a little fish in a ginormous ocean
1: and yeah definitely and then you know you, you always I used to tell people like people either loved me or hated me I don't know like that's just the, how I there was um growing up there was like people I, I had so many friends lots of people but then there was a couple of people who just didn't like me right and I think as I've gotten older had kids myself I'm very conscious of that and I think when you're young being a big fish in a small pond kind of gets, you can get you in a lot of trouble because it, you don't see with things with as much clarity as you probably could. And so New York allows for that finance and wall street allows for you to step back and, and see the world differently. And, and the analogy I tell a lot of people around wall street specifically, it's such a unique place and it's a great industry and, You work on these giant trading floors, hundreds of people. You look to your left, you see someone. You look to your right, you see someone. And you realize the guy to your left is making less money. And then the guy to the right is making way more money. And you look back at your screen, and then everybody just keeps doing their job because that's just, you have to accept it, right? So if you complain, oh, this guy's making too much, and this, right? Like that's just how it is. It's climbing up a ladder that's difficult. And there's a lot of people. And so people can accept that, move on, learn, iterate, improve their process. That's how you can have a little bit more longevity.
0: So do you think then that as you were sort of finding your feet and figuring it out, you were able to sort of pivot quickly and like realign, get back on track, reorient, you know, kind of finding my bearings, finding my bearings, and you were able to sort of adapt quickly. And that's one of the things that served you. Or do you think it's like your emotional intelligence, your confidence, or like, what is it that served you? Why did you survive? Why did you become successful? Like, why did it work for you versus, you know, the dude next to you who was tanking?
1: It's very much like a startup. You got to be able to fail quickly and, and, and reiterate, right? And so it's a mix of everything that you said. And I think for me personally, what... I was always intrigued by it. There's a lot of people who get a great first job, they get that perfect analyst job out of an Ivy League school and they stay in that same job for 20, 25, 30 years. Why? Because they're paying them a lot of money to do that same job. My path was so different that I was, I had my first job was not the most prestigious. My second job was at JP Morgan, but it wasn't the most prestigious job at JP Morgan. The next one, again, J.P. Morgan, but wasn't the mo- it was more prestigious than the last job. And so then I went to a FinTech before that was even a term. And I spent a year there, year and a half. And then I finally got the job at Barclays that I felt like, wow, I'm really proud of the job. I was almost t- uh, 30 years old at the time. So it took a long time to get through that path. And along the way, uh, of course, I was doing well in comparison to the rest of the world or the rest of the country. But in a wall street style, I like, you know, I had to fight to get to this job that I was super proud of. Right. And then very quickly you learn to your left, there's somebody else in your Right. And so it's just sort of that rat race of corporate America that exists in wall street as well. Just, there's bigger numbers behind everything. And so you learn a lot, but with everything, I think I like most about my career then, my career today, and how I live my life. I want to be constantly learning, right? I want to be a lifelong educator. So we send our kids to very progressive schools because I like that concept of wanting to be curious about learning for the long haul, not just learning to figure out how to score well on a test. And so I think that concept uh, applies really to life and you know the earlier you can instill that really being curious right and understanding how things work i think that's something that i am particularly good at right I, I i like so i feel like i know how a bank works now did i run a bank or a huge division no but i understood it and i think that helped me a lot um and i think a lot of people they just they don't care enough right they don't need to they're making enough money and they just they just come in every day. And so it's a little bit, it's a little bit different. That makes sense.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. I think what I just sort of extrapolating from what you just said is curiosity and failing quickly and failing forward are two things that served you a lot. So instead of something quote unquote bad happening to me, the way that your brain processed it is, Oh, this is challenging. Let's get curious about this. What's this trying to teach me? What can I learn from this? How can I derive meaning from this? Or what can I do with this rather than, oh, why is this happening to me? Or, oh, I'm such an idiot. Like, I'm sure you had moments where you thought I'm an idiot. Like, I know you're not a narcissist, but how did you alchemize that? Right. So taking the, okay, so curiosity serves me. Got it. Understanding that I got to sort of jump back up quickly, fail quickly, fail forward. Got it how then like, and I think you probably see that now you maybe didn't realize that in the time as you were going through it, but when you look back now at that 30 something kid and the 20 something kid and you look at, so I was curious and I failed quickly and failed forward. Looking around you, if you think about the other dudes that you worked with, the other managers or other people like higher up than you, do you see like, oh, we shared those traits, you know, Or like, also maybe my emotional intelligence served me well or didn't, or what did you do with that? Like that you think other people weren't doing. So it's like, what, where I'm going is like people who are listening to this that go, okay, so I do the curious thing and I, I fail well, I, you know, I learned from my failure. What do you do with that? Like, do you just sort of hide that away in your brain or do you talk about it with other people? and and are vulnerable with other people about all oh, my failures or is that like scandalous on wall street and nobody's talking about screwing up because God forbid, you know, like, cause the egos are so big, like, what do you do with it?
1: Yeah. So, so there's a lot, right. I think one thing curious and trying to take that curiosity and looking at things from a different perspective is huge. And so what I say is I think a lot of the people on wall street are constantly looking at different angles and trying to figure things out. And if they're able to do that, they see stuff that other people are not seeing. But it's all there, but you've just got to look at it from a different angle. So I think that ability is something that a young person has a lot of, has a hard time doing, and it takes time to mature in yourself to be able to do that you asked about some of the senior people, my peers, people below me. I think the the greatest thing that I learned was because of these angles that I just talked about was I tended to build relationships. Not a lot of people will only build with the people above them. Some will build with their peers. I wanted to actually build with the people below me, my peers and above. And so going through that chain was something that, I thought was important. One of my great managers ended up telling me, hey, Joe, you're great at managing this client relationship, right? Maybe the head of trading or the COO, but how about then meeting the partner or the founder or the CIO, right? Always trying to go one up. But so it's being able to manage at all different types of relationships. If you can do that on Wall Street, you can just communicate so much better with people. And so that's a little bit of the emotional intelligence of being able to simplify things and not being able to say, I don't understand that because I think what has happened on wall street, especially how main street looks at it is it sounds too complicated and Oh, there they go again. Right. But the smartest guys on wall street know how to simplify everything. If they can't simply tell a message, then they can't manage to the other divisions, the other people, because there's too many constituents. And so you have to be able to synthesize quickly, but also articulate extremely effectively. And so that is partly about being smart, but as you say, it's a lot about being emotionally intelligent because you're dealing with all different egos, types of people, all different levels, right? And so sometimes I would get some of the best information between the juniors, right? The people who were 10 years younger than me, right? I I still stay in touch with people younger than me, people older than me, like, you know, as you know, we've, Raise a seed round for a startup. And so who are the investors? A lot of people I work with, some of the most senior people that, that I work with that I always looked up to. And I'm also talking to people who were analysts when I was just hitting my strides. So it's being able to kind of navigate up and down. I think that's something that I think everybody needs to do. And, and if you do that in any industry, I think people just appreciate it. You become very approachable.
0: I guess because what I'm assuming like with the stereotype, when I think of wall street or I think of, you know, big finance in New York, I think of narcissists, big egos. Um, yeah. And I guess what I don't, my brain doesn't think of is emotional intelligence. I just think there's more of a business mind fixation, the real laser focus on getting the prize. You know, I just, I think of just Jordan, Wolf of Wall Street, you know, that's what I sort of that and what is portrayed in that movie is what my brain thinks. And then obviously like working with different clients and working with people across demographics and lifespans and all over the world and stuff in my 41 years on the planet, I've come to learn that that's not all that it is, that that's a portion of what Wall Street is, what that movie portrays. But I guess what I'm hearing from you is that emotional intelligence is actually quite a ninja skill that will actually push you in the long term and make you much more successful i think financially you know emotionally relationship wise like your life will be richer if you can harness that part of your brain that's not just fixated on making money and crushing it but also on investing in relationships and connection and that kind of thing and focusing on asking, say, the receptionist, how was your weekend and how are you and how are your kids or whatever? Yeah, that's what serves you.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a people business at the end of the day, right? Obviously, technology and automation and markets have changed interest rate derivatives, which I have 20 years of background. That market has evolved quite a bit and it's changing. But at the end of the day, a lot of it, is still a people business, right? And so there are people who are brilliant on Wall Street. And I think because of the money and the dollar size, it gets fantasized that everybody's brilliant. And what I would always tell the youngest people that come in, it's like, everybody's smart here, right? Like that, like everybody's smart. And so it's not about the for a lot of people, it's the people who know how to work really hard, who as you say, being emotionally intelligent, I don't think anybody actually uses that term, definitely not on the trading desk. But if I think about some of the people I worked for who manage huge businesses, they got a lot of people to work so hard for them, one, because of the monetary value, but two, because they knew how to lead, right? And that's that leadership quality. It's about leading people at the end of the day, right? The money definitely helps, but for the few that are the, the best leaders that I've seen and I've worked for, they definitely have that. They can relate to people and they can simplify things, right? And that's what I learned from the guys that I looked up to, right? That's what I took with me later on in life. And, you know, now is we're, we're building a, a great company.
0: Yeah, you're so right. Leadership. Well, cause it's, you're getting people to do what you want through influence rather than coercive control and dominance and intimidation and manipulation and threats and all that kind of crap, which is how I think a lot of old school people think leadership or management is supposed to look like. And then I think you realize quite quickly, especially when you can compare different managers that you've had, when you compare them and you go, No, actually, no, 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 no. What actually makes you want to work hard for someone or do your best is someone who inspires and someone who encourages you and who has influence over you. And you only build that influence through connection and relationship, right? Like you're not gonna be feel connected to someone who's controlling and dominating. I would imagine that you have some crazy stories of people that you worked for or worked with that operated, I guess, with an iron fist or who operated with just sheer dominance and toxic masculinity and all that kind of stuff. Like, do you have an anecdote or a story of like one of the craziest things? You know, you had a boss say, I want you guys to work 72 hours without sleeping or like, I don't know, did you, do you have any wild stories of like that real tough kind of what not to do? <laughs> yeah.
1: You, you know, what's funny that old school mentality. I, I think that's a real thing. I think it still exists. If you accept that everybody's smart, what you realize, there's not that many great leaders. And so a manager and a leader, totally different, right? They are not the same. And because the corporate culture of lots of companies are this triangular, and we've kind of talked about it. How do you get away from that? Someone at the top and everyone else below, yes. right? And and that's how it historically has been done. So there's a lot of people and middle management, right? But there's, to lead, that's, you need to be able to inspire people. And so, what I tell people, I've worked for really great managers, I've worked for some terrible managers, right? And that's just the nature of the beast, because there's just too many people. And there's so much politicking that goes on that, you know, I used to tell people, I think there's a little bit of ageism on Wall Street, right? When I was 33, I was like, I should be, I should have a bigger job. And a lot of people think that, right? Because they're brilliant or they're, they're great at sales or they're a great trader or they're the best deal maker. And so there's a lot of, you have to serve your time. And sometimes you just have to kind of, that's where being overconfident can get you into a lot of trouble. Right. And so that's where being. Emotionally intelligent with others is a skill, but being emotionally intelligent with yourself is also a different skill, right? So being able to read the room is one thing. And sometimes you have to be able to read yourself and and pace yourself. And so I think I, not to go into any details about a good manager, a bad manager and my war stories, because (laughs) I definitely have them and there's my, my highs and lows at the end of the day, someone gave me the, as I was learning a certain skills of politicking at a bank, someone said, you know, at the end of the day, don't spend your time on all these internal people. Make sure your clients love you. Right. And make sure that you really get to know your clients. And I think that's important. And I spent a lot of time with clients and today, I, maybe I call them stakeholders. I think that's key. That advice that I was given, I think sticks in every industry, right? Because if you're not listening to the people who can help, whether it's in sales or whether to build a business or a partnership, you kind of get into trouble, right? And and so I think that's where I focus the later half of my career, really building relationships with clients that I think really mattered. And now when, when I look at our investors, we don't have hundreds of investors yet, but I have Investors that were clients, investors that were colleagues, investors that were friends, investors that like at the end of the day, they're taking a bet on our team. They're definitely taking a bet on me if I know them personally, but I think I love the fact that I've been able to create Client relationships that have gone on so much more than the transactional side of Wall Street. One of our co-founders was a client of mine for 10 years, right? And we just became so intrigued with each other as two individuals that we got along. We we understood each other from our different seats, and we decided to build a business together, right? And and so I think that says to the advice I got, build relationships with clients and it can go a long way. And so I think a lot of those relationships, I'm excited about the future, right. Of continuing to keep those relationships over a 20 year career. Mm -hmm.
0: And so just on that, what prompted you to get out of wall street and to get into building a startup? I mean, it's a bit of a leap. I know that lots of people on wall street are involved with startups, but like to still kind of I don't know, hang up your hat and then go, all right, I'm going to go all in on co-founding this, you know, business. Like what, how, you know, why, what, what was the, the jump?
1: Yeah. So it's funny. I, I mentioned, I was, I was motivated by money at a young age, right? I think most people on Wall Street, like there is some tie to, Hey, how do you make as much money as fast as you can? So then you can make, your own decisions later in life. That was probably some advice I was given and it stuck with me. Make as much money as fast as you can and then make your own decisions. And so for me, when I was in, I think I was 28, Lehman Brothers had just collapsed. I met my wife at at JP Morgan. We were on a group together, bringing in large hedge fund clients into a, a division called Prime Brokerage and we worked for some really great people now one of our two managers of of that division she's the most senior woman at JP Morgan and she gets oh, accolade after accolade and it's so exciting because I was there right before she made managing director, right? Like, so we're all so proud of of the people that you work with because when you work on a, a small group and you build something, it's so exciting, right? And so I was so fortunate that I was able to do that, be a very early stage employee and really build something within a much larger organization, right? And then you see the managers, both Teresa, who I just mentioned, and Dave, Dave is the cio of a a very large financial firm now right and so so to be able to work with people but then go through lehman brothers in 2008 and sitting with the people running it, and they're like i don't know what's going on like nobody really understood and so we all just dove into it we tried to get out of this massive storm right and at jp morgan we had acquired bear stearns which was going under in March of 2008 and then Lehman did eventually Lehman did go under. And, and so it was very chaotic and I fell in love and met my, was my wife. It was just such a unique kind of my life. But as I mentioned, I, I didn't get the most prestigious job. And so I was always trying to chase money. Right. And so fast forward Lehman collapses two months later, they walked five people to two people. I mentioned, they walked five people in a room Cause we were a small group within a bigger group that was all building. Right. And so the five of us, it's my girlfriend who nobody knows that we're dating. And then three of our colleagues and they bring us into a room. It's probably November 15th, 2008. And they say, we're closing the business. None of you guys are like, go, oh, don't worry. We're going to find homes for you, but we're closing the business. And it was something we we had all built. It was hard, but like that, having great managers and being able to go through that, not only did we have to build something, but then we had to unwind the business. And so I learned a ton from that. Elaine and I at that point were like, okay, we're going to Hawaii together. And people realized that we're dating, that we were getting rid of the business. right? And so through that, I ended up going through that, the build and then the unwind, and then knowing that again, great managers, I ended up going from associate to vice president. And even though I didn't go the traditional way, I still made vice president at the same age as had I gone to Harvard and gotten that same analyst job. So I I felt really proud of that accomplishment. And so Teresa called me into the room, I want to say in January of of 2009. And she said, hey, so if you could get VP, but we would have a harder time finding you your next job. And at this time, they're firing people, leaving like the financial crisis is pretty bad. Or you can stay an associate. It'll be easier to find you a job. What do you want? I was like, if I earned it, I want it. Month later, I got it. I was so proud of it, but my salary didn't go up. So I made the exact same dollar amount as I did As an associate, and everybody, when you make this beat, and it was because nobody at JP Morgan in that year got a salary increase, and bonuses were down because Lehman Brothers went under. So it was a tough pill to swallow. Mm -hmm. And the arrogance that I had caught up with me, right? And so, although I had done so much work to get the promotion, I was like, you know what? Instead of staying at JP Morgan, Somebody called me a fintech before that was even a term, and they wanted to give me a ton of responsibility at 28 years old. And I was like, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go get equity at a startup, just not an established place, and, and try my luck. And so I did it for a year and a half. I didn't love how I was compensated. And a lot of banks came calling because just my knowledge base from unwinding that business at JP Morgan and things were changing and Dodd Frank came out. And so then I got um, new opportunities. And so when I went to Barclays, I had a great experience until I didn't because it it's, there's a lot of ups and downs. And then I went to another bank, Wells Fargo, and I quickly realized at Wells Fargo that I was like, I was a little bit of a fish out of water. And so I spent five and a half years there and I met some great people, worked with some great people. Again, some of them were investors. And so parts of it were fruitful. I had two young kids and I had a boss who allowed me to kind of manage my own business. Right. And I was able to bring over a lot of clients from one bank to another. And I just, I got to see my kids a ton and I had so much time to figure out what I wanted to do. And I failed about four or five jobs, right? I tried to go for one bigger job and it didn't happen. And, and, you know, that's the process. Like I've interviewed for very, very big jobs and I get very close and I would miss. And there was one point, I think in 2018, I decided to not look at hedge fund jobs and more bank jobs. And I was going to go look at startups. And I spent a few months and I, I met with the CEO of a company and he asked me how much I made. And I told him, and he's like, oh, I can't pay you anywhere close. I was like, oh, you know, my wife's got a great job. I'm willing to take a down cut if I can get the equity to work. And he was just like, never quit your job because I can't pay. And I was like, I I was like, oh, my gosh, I won't be able to find. Like, it's going to be hard unless I find somebody who I know who runs a startup, but somebody blindly taking a bet on Like I couldn't get the math to work. And so there was a little bit of me, hey, I w- maybe I'm I'm ready at this point to try something on my own, right? I had built businesses at bigger places. I would never done something super entrepreneurial. Um, I had a t-shirt business w- when I was 25, and that was about <laughs> it. Um, and I was the number two guy there. Um, And so it was, it was that sort of desire to do more. And even though I had so much time with my kids and it was a special moment, I just had this fire in my belly to just, I wasn't, I'm okay with working 70, 80 hours of a week because if you love it, it's okay, right? If you don't love it, you don't want to work that hard. And so I've had jobs on wall street that I loved it. And I was willing to run through a wall for people right? In startup life, you have to be able to do that. And what I realized, and again, I'm hopefully becoming more mature now being not motivated by money is the single greatest thing that I've learned through this, because you can build something if you're not so focused on climbing up that chain, right? And building something special and lasting, it's hard, But if you're able to do it with people you trust, people you like going in, the money doesn't matter as much. I mean, it matters, right? Because people have to take care of others. But if you're working towards a similar goal and you're fair and you're open, I think that goes a long way. And I think that's what we we try and strive for at Hive Class, that we have an open entrepreneurial environment. And it's really fun to build. It's fun to build a culture. You and I have talked about this building a culture, but like really letting the people and the team really contribute as opposed to what I think the old corporate culture of top down pushing a culture that the people don't actually believe. Right. But so it's not it's not easy, but it's it's inspiring as you as you work together to figure all that out.
0: Wow. Wow. What can you tell us about, I actually have a meeting with Paul in five minutes. <laughs> so who's the other co-founder in the next few minutes. Can you tell us quickly what Hive Class is about and what we're doing and yeah. And how people can find more about it. And I think maybe we should do another episode where we just talk about startups and what you've learned in startup land and how does funding work? How does, you know, how do you get VC involved? Like, how does that even I think a lot of people are curious about that because it's such a different time that startups are a thing now, like even just the phrase, you know, something that's, wasn't around when we were growing up, you know? So anyway, yeah. yeah what, you know, what, what can you tell us about Hive Class and, and what it is and what this startup is all about?
1: Yeah. So it's for a long time, I felt at least in the U S the public education system, like something was going to, to shift, right. Education in general, college and higher ed is so expensive and I just felt like there was a lot of opportunity in education and so Paul who he just mentioned is our co-founder also we grew up with for a long time he and I would always kind of spitball ideas and so when the pandemic hit I was working on another venture and I was just seeing I, I wasn't I was exiting Wells Fargo, and so I had a lot of clarity when the world was a l- very nuts, and it was the first time I never had a trading mandate, so I could personally trade, and I was trading in the stock market, and when everybody was running for the hills, I started becoming a buyer, so it was it was just a really fun time, and it was something that I got to just really explore, and so with, with Hive Class, I just... I would watch the news every day. I was like, education in America is going to kind of explode and change. And Paul, Justin, and I started talking about a couple ideas. And we realized there wasn't a lot of great ways to learn sports remotely. We realized physical education or PE in America just wasn't happening. And we said, can we reimagine youth sports training and physical education? And so it's been super exciting. We want to be the low cost option in America and hopefully the world to learn how to play sports. And I emphasize that word learn. We believe that we can take most sports and construct our curriculum in a way to break it down so a parent or a kid can actually learn the fundamentals, especially when youth sports has just gotten so expensive. So the average family in America is spending $750 per kid per sport. You have two kids, it's $1,500 a year. It's become an access issue. And so we're trying to solve that access issue. And I think that's what motivates me. And because of mobile technology, I think our, our end goal is, can we take great content, deliver it on a mobile platform or a cell phone, and think of the idea of delivering Brazilian soccer coaches to kids in India. That's what I think we have the power to be able to do. And I was on, um, I was, I listened to another podcast of an early Microsoft exec. And he said, if you can solve a problem for a billion people, uh, he's like, I don't care what the problem is, but if you can solve this, any problem for a billion people, it's a $10 billion company. And when I heard that we were going through, we were just put, finalizing our pitch book and I had just come across a stat, my back of the envelope, wall street math that I there's 2.2 billion kids in the world. And I think there's only 500 at most, but I think it's really between 200 and 500 million kids who play organized youth sports. We've uncovered a problem for over a billion people and we think the opportunity is there. It's now all about execution, right? And it's about a team and it's about building and it's about having a strategy and it's about having clients like public libraries and schools and consumers And relating to them using different tools not using all the tools that everyone has done but tying in things like social emotional learning and so when did we reach out to you i think paul (laughs) reached out to you in uh, about a month in because we were like how do we kind of change the narrative of how things have been done and are we building a product for elite athletes no well, probably not, but we think we're building a product for the 99% warrant we think that's what's exciting. So again, it's Hive Class. Check us out and we're, we're we're super excited for the future.
0: Awesome. Thanks, dude. Thanks for sharing some insight on your journey and kind of how you've got to this point. And I think we definitely have to chat again about what you've learned in startup land and how one even if someone has a great idea, then what? Cause I know we've spoken about before your interest in wanting to train and teach others and that you have kind of a heart and a passion for, you know, taking all the knowledge that's in your brain and giving it to the next kid who's coming up and wants to build a business or has an idea. So I think we'll have to do another episode about startups and stuff and how to do that and how to raise capital. But thanks for being here and thanks for taking your time to share what you've learned along the way. And I think it's always interesting for people to hear from someone who's maybe gone down a path that's different, you know, like not everyone can say, I know someone who's on Wall Street and, you know, lives in New York and has led that whole kind of life. So I think there's a lot of value in learning from each other. And when people do different paths than us, it's cool, I think, because there's stuff we can all share with each other. So thanks, dude
1: yeah absolutely this was awesome we appreciate you a lot so thank you for having me
0: Mm, thanks dude if you're a parent or a professional who works with children and you want my help in improving things with the kiddos in your life or if you're simply a human being feeling kind of stuck and maybe kind of overwhelmed my online programs have lots of resources transformative content one-on-one coaching group coaching and a supportive community if you want to learn more just go to HeidiRogers.com All right, friends, thank you as always for tuning in today. Our time is our most precious asset, so I truly appreciate you sharing your time with me. I'll see you right back here for the next episode of Tell the Others.